Hi, and welcome to Off the Charts, the podcast of the Energy Policy Institute at the University of Chicago. I'm EPIC's Executive Director, Sam Ory. About a year ago, President Biden laid out his climate agenda. That agenda has since been roughly split into two congressional actions, an infrastructure bill that passed last summer with bipartisan support, and the Build Back Better Act that still sits with the Senate. Recently, EPIC Policy Fellow Heather McTeer-Tony, Vice President of Community Engagement for the Environmental Defense Fund, and EPIC Journalism Fellow Lisa Friedman, a climate policy reporter for the New York Times, sat down to talk about where things stand with climate change in the United States. Let's listen into their conversation. Heather, you and I have known each other for a while now. We, I did not, we didn't know each other when you were uh, a regional administrator at EPA, but during the Trump administration, we talked and were on numerous panels together and talked about the rollbacks of the Trump administration. And now we're in an era where President Biden is rolling back many of the rollbacks, um, has made really ambitious promises on climate change, has delivered on some and still not on others. Give me your first general impressions of, of how this administration is doing on climate change. So first, I think we have to take a step back and, and look at a really big picture of where we are and the fact that we're even having this conversation. Mm. You know, I can remember when you and I first sort of started talking about this, that the very idea of climate being an issue that's covered in the media from a government perspective, talked about in communities, is a tremendous step forward, but also one that is necessary. And I think with the Biden administration's work, they have done a yeoman's job of keeping climate in the forefront of the conversation while dealing with so many other domestic and international issues. So the fact that even from the time of debates when you know climate and environmental justice for the first time was being discussed to even now, um, still centering it, um, it speaks a lot to where climate and environmental concerns are for this administration. And I mean, you mentioned environmental justice. Environmental justice is at the heart of this administration in a way that I haven't seen before, even in, in the Obama administration. Can, can you talk about some of the things that are being done now that are, that are new, that are taking environmental policy in a, in a new direction where, where environmental justice is concerned? So, you know, some of that has to be given credit to the environmental justice organizations and leaders that are on the front lines that really push to have this at the center of the conversation. Yeah. Had it not been for those organizations really staying and stepping forward um, to, to say that environmental justice has to be at the center of any policy, I don't think we'd be here. Uh, it is the Bullet Center for Environmental Justice, Deep South Center for Environmental Justice, um, the, the, the WE Acts of the, of the U.S. that have really put a stake in saying that we have to have this conversation. And as a result, the Biden administration has incorporated Justice 40 as a executive order, which requires all of the agencies to look at how they can have 40% of the benefit coming from their agency on, on the funding go towards environmental justice communities. Are all the agencies doing that? I think all the agencies at least are required to look at how they do it. There is a bit of concern about the consistency of how the agencies are doing it. But I got to say, Lisa, I am 
I, I do have hope because the WEJAC, the White House Environmental Justice Advisory Council, is really on it to say we ha- we're going to have a scorecard. You know, we're going to look back to see how this administration and specifically how the agencies within this administration really handled funds and whether or not they went to the benefit of people who are on the front lines and are most at risk for suffering from climate change. This brings us to one of the the complications of the administration's efforts, which is the Justice 40 screening tool, which identifies historically disadvantaged communities and as a way to help inform where money should be spent, right? Right. Um, That tool doesn't use racial demographics when we know that communities of color have been on the front lines and historically uh, you know, dealing with disproportionate impacts of pollution, of toxic chemicals. Um, talk about this, you know, this issue with me. I mean, is it, is it, um, what does it mean to have a tool to address racial inequities that can't use race? Yeah, it, it is. You're right. One of the most difficult challenges that this administration is trying to figure out, um, because environmental justice, just as it has been defined, uh, centers race as a main, if not the main indicator of where we find environmental yeah. justices throughout this country. Uh, and it's been one of the indicators that among environmental justice experts, public health experts, um, scientists, it's its one of the indicators that is the first go-to because they can look and clearly see where there are racial uh, disparities and racial gaps. Right. Those are places where you can find environmental injustices. At the same time, this administration recognizes that we are sitting with very conservative courts that have already said um, they will not... Uh, be accepting uh, and will not allow the continuation of benefits based on race. So it doesn't so make sense. Right. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a major bind right. because uh, how do we eradicate racism without talking about race is what it boils down to. So do you the, think this can still be an effective tool? I think we have to figure out how we're going to show a that race is a critical factor and there are tools that are being developed um, that are looking at that dr robert bullard um, stated at the hbc father of environmental justice (laughs) father of environmental justice uh, he stated at the hbcu climate change consortium that you know, they're looking at how they can create and craft a tool that does include race in a way to show the holes and disparities of what happens and who is excluded when you don't have race. And I think that's an important mechanism. Another place that we need to look, and it's one that's very important to how we're able to deploy these resources, is also to groups that are not required to look at or exclude this factor. So philanthropy, Mm. 
business, they can contribute and utilize funds in a way that's leveraging what federal resources are available, and they can look at race. And right now, I think we are at such an urgent moment in the climate crisis that we do need all tools and resources to be at the forefront in a way that is allowing us to address the problem in the places that are hardest hit and that are most likely to suffer the most harm and that we have to use every indicator possible. Right. Diving into the climate crisis and the U.S. response. Um, you know, the Congress last year passed the bipartisan infrastructure package. Uh, it includes money for what I've described, and tell me if you think this is accurate or not, as sort of the the limits of what Republicans are willing to fund to address climate change. CCS, carbon capture storage, nuclear, some money for research and development, and uh, money for resilience, but nothing that will actually force the reduction of emissions. Is that, do you feel like that's an accurate way to describe what passed? A, a, a good, good bit of what passed. I think okay. there's, a, there's the, the infrastructure resiliency money that, that passed. There's, there's some energy money there that, again, goes to help ensure that we've got building resiliency in, in places, in, in communities. Transportation is a, is a big piece of this as well. Grid stability. Um, also, there was a bit there for that. So I think there are a couple of, there, there, there of good things not, that there, we'll do. there are definitely yes. some good things that um, were passed uh, that put us in a position where we have something to, to work with. And that's very important um, because it's, it's, it's interesting how the messaging of this is translated in the ground, on the ground into communities. How do you mean? So we talk quite often about climate resiliency, climate solutions, but on com in, in the communities where we have the hardest hit um, areas on climate, extreme weather, yeah. sitting in centers of pollution, by the time the funding gets there, people are thinking about this funding as an active way to respond. So <clears throat> a great example is when I think of like Build Back Better and the languaging around Build Back Better. And let's just explain to listeners yes. who might not be familiar. <laughs> so um, President Biden's climate agenda uh, as such is sort of divided now into mm -hmm. two parts. One, uh, through the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which passed, and is delivering the things we just talked about. The other is uh, a package that's now called Build Back Better. Uh, I keep hearing Senator Tom Carper calling it now Build Back Slimmer. And, and this has not passed. This mm -hmm. is in limbo in the Senate. Um, Senator in the in the divided, evenly divided Senate, uh, Senator Joe Manchin, Democrat of West Virginia, has said that he could not vote for the version that was crafted last year, which included about $500 uh, billion in climate funds, about 300 or 330, 330 billion of that in tax credits for uh, energy efficient buildings, for electric vehicle charging stations, for grid, uh, to, to enable the grid to carry more renewable energy um, and other efforts. Um, first, let's talk about the substance of that and then we'll get to the politics. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. So. Um, <clears throat> 
to initially start with what is our big wish list of yeah. all the things that we know need to be done with respect to the climate crisis and how we create communities that are adapting, that are becoming more resilient and are mitigating their damages and potential impacts is a critical, important part of this. And all of the things that we saw in the initial bill, uh, I think, are necessary. And of course, because of our political process, there's going to be some negotiating and some, some trading. So with the bipartisan infrastructure bill, which is the part one, that's the money we see coming now into communities. Yeah. And so that's where we have mayors and city councils and county commissions and academic institutions that are looking at how they can deploy these resources in a way that is both creating that resilient city, but also providing opportunities for people to work in climate, be creative and innovative around the solutions. Um, that's the research that's and development exciting. money, yeah. right? That's the opportunities for young people to find uh, creative ways to be a part of this work and at the same time be have be become meaningful, this become meaningful as a part of their work. But to, to use this as an innovation and a business driver, leveraging more money to come in from private industry, from philanthropy, and really using this as a catalyst moment. So that money is hitting pockets and streets right now. And it's extremely important that we remember we need to spend it. We need to do it. <laughs> like this is a huge, tremendous opportunity for us. And we cannot let this moment go to waste. And is that part of what you're discussing later this week when you're meeting with uh, mayors? And, absolutely. And absolutely. I think mayors know this on, on first hand. First of all, they, they're, they're living and breathing in the front line. Um, and they, in their communities right now, are not only hearing what people want to see happen in their spaces where they live, work, pray every day, but they also have to intersect it with the other issues in their communities because we don't silo climate. Right. It has to go along, as we say, you know, from a local perspective, a mayor only wants to tear up a street one time. So if they've <laughs> got to tear it up to replace water lines or to redo the street, let's make that street more resilient. Let's go ahead and put in the EV infrastructure that we need to put in. Let's go ahead and do some road diets if that's what we need to do, which is reducing the amount of space for a highway to include bike lanes, um, tree cover. Let's look at the places that have been excluded in this type of infrastructure in the past and make sure that they are the first ones that receive any of the benefit. That's the money in the conversation like happening focus? now. Sorry, do you feel like there's a real focus from the administration in making sure that communities that have been underserved are... At the front of the line now? I think that's the purpose of Justice 40. Okay. The Justice 40 component is to make sure that there is a mechanism there that allows those communities to step to the front of the line and at least require. As this money going out the door yes, now. Yes, it yeah. required that 40%. And each agency being flexible in how they're able to do that. Because the way that um, Health and Human Services is able to contribute 40% is going to look different than the Department of Transportation, sure. which is going to be completely different from the Environmental Protection Agency and totally different from um, <clears throat> the Veterans Administration. Right. So they do need to have that flexibility, but they also need to use and work with one another. Interesting. Because think about a community that is a historically uh, underserved population 
on the front lines of climate crisis. So let's think, you know, Beaumont, Texas, Mm -hmm. or St. James Parish, Louisiana, or places that are living both with pollution and on the front lines of climate, but also have significant infrastructure needs in healthcare, in um, their base roads and bridges, uh, in ensuring that they are creating resilient natural systems, protective barriers of their coastal lands. Well, they need all the agencies to be able to work together and put together that 40% in the same way that they need to be at the front of the line for that funding. And these are, again, these opportunities that I think the administration is thinking through in terms of deployment and how we make the money work. Equally important are the tons in the atmosphere where we are, as a global community, (laughs) hoping to keep global rising temperatures to 1.5 degrees Celsius from pre-industrial levels. We're now at 1.1. The Build Back Better funding, uh, you know, uh, economists have said that it will get the Biden administration pretty far along. The Biden administration has said we're going to reduce U.S. emissions 50 to 52 percent below 2005 levels by 2030. It's around the corner. Emissions are going the wrong direction. Um, (laughs) And Build Back Better is give us your your outlook. Yeah. Um, So for for people who are listening who get like myself confused about the 1.52 degrees, what does that mean? I think about it like my child having a fever, right? If my son gets a fever, every mom just about knows when you're at 99 to 100 or 100.03, then it's, you know, we're over the Tylenol. We're getting ready to head to the hospital once we get to certain numbers, right? Because now the the body is at a temperature where it no longer is self-regulating their concerns because there's extensive damage that's going to take place. So there is emergency action that goes into place. That's the same way we have to think about the Earth's temperature and this 1.5 to 2 degrees. We're at 1.1 now. So for me, it's like when I'm as a mom with my kids, I'm reaching for the Tylenol. We have to bring the temperature down. And that is the space that we have to think about reducing global emissions in the United States and beyond. Because we don't want to get to the place where we no longer have control and now we're rushing to the emergency room, to the hospital. And that rushing is tantamount to how we have to put in some extensive, very, very harsh reductions that I think it's easier for us to deal with and embrace if we're doing this on the front end, on the voluntary side, right? Right. I mean, one of the things I often think about, you know, when I when I look at um, sort of the discussion around climate change is, you know, we're not, it's not that we're going to fall off a cliff. It gets much harder and much more expensive the longer yes. that we wait. Um, and we've waited a long time. What are the, what do you think the outlook is for Build Back Better right now? So we have the best shot right now for our Congress our Senate to pass legislation. Do you think the Biden administration has done enough to push for it? Uh, I think they've got a bit more to do. Like what? I think they've got a bit more to do. I think we have definitely tried to, um, and the Biden administration has tried to be as bipartisan as possible. Um, But that means that there may have to be a bit more of the 
push to get Democrats to just move it along uh, in order for us to get to climate legislation. Um, but I mean, Build Back Better was never going to be bipartisan. Republicans had disowned it a long time ago. This was about getting 50 Democrats and one of them, Joe Manchin, has mm -hmm. said no. Um, what What is the thing that the White House or President Biden hasn't done yet that could do now to to push this over the line? Do you think, or or is it have they done everything possible? I think they've got some more we can do even among pushing back against misinformation, ensuring that the public is intricately involved, uh, getting out there even more so, and the demands that we're seeing that are coming from the public to our senators. I mean, just uh, within the past few weeks to see the press on Washington, uh, press from youth activists, environmental justice activists, but also engaging other uh, groups that may not see themselves as climate, right? right? And I think that the administration is and has an opportunity to do that, um, especially right now, but there has to be a total full court press on this. It absolutely has to be. The other piece of this though, sort of ties back to the beginning of the first half of the infrastructure bill. Because mm -hmm. remember we said that that money is hitting streets now, right? Right. So for everybody who's not inside the Washington Beltway and who's not tuned into the news every single day and not akin, uh, not familiar with all the climate language and everything that we're mm -hmm. talking about, they're seeing money come into their community. They're seeing their friends and neighbors get jobs after COVID. They're seeing us build back better. And so there's almost like a gap between what we're talking about in terms of the federal climate legislation that needs to be passed and the message that people are receiving in their hometown. Because again, people are seeing visually, okay, there's a construction project going on here. And 10 months ago, I heard about this thing where we're now, as Americans, we're building back better. We're coming back stronger. We're becoming more resilient. I saw that F-150 Lightning uh, ad at the Super Bowl and they're announcing it. And I see these EV chargers going up. And so in the minds of people, they are seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, build back better. I understand that, but is it not all, are both, cannot both things be true? That good things are happening and yet we are not, we have not done enough either legislatively or regula regulatorily to bring down the tons in the atmosphere. I mean, we're, <laughs> you know, if, if uh, you know, maybe it's, it's early days, but, you know, what will it mean for the rest of the world if the U.S. shows up at the next U.N. climate conference without having passed climate legislation again? It definitely puts us at a disadvantage in terms of working and negotiating with our neighboring countries uh, of how we're going to go about this deployment of the solutions that everybody else has been working so desperately hard on. I think at the same time, though, that doesn't mean we're out of this game. It does not mean it does not mean that at all. Do you think it'll pass? Do you think Build Back Better will pass? I have my fingers crossed 
I, I am definitely a hopeful person of faith. I have my fingers crossed, my toes crossed, but there is a heck of a lot of work that still has to be done on this. And I think the Biden administration is certainly committed to it. And there are a lot of allies that are working to ensure that we are in this dead to the end and always have been. And part of that means ensuring the public that it's working, Yeah, that what happened last year and what was passed is working um, assuring the public that even as we're talking about what needs to be passed right now they need to be calling every senator every member of congress to say we need this to keep working and yes it is very important for us to understand and think about reducing our emissions for the 2030 and 2040 targets but we have to be realistic and relate this to the american pocketbook every day and show people how this is helping us to reduce the energy costs, how investing in the climate legislation is a way that we are recovering from what has happened um, from COVID, from our economy, creating jobs, ensuring that we are putting the United States in a position to be a strong powerhouse. We have to connect the dots for them. And that's what the Biden administration is going to have to do to pass this. Okay, so we talked a a few moments ago about uh, the climate negotiations uh, at COP26 in Glasgow last year. Um, There was, you know, deep disappointment that the U.S. hadn't yet passed major climate legislation hopefulness that it was around the corner. Um, The U.S. is, you know, the Biden administration has promised to be a leader to both urge other countries and help other countries to reduce emissions themselves. Um, What are, what are some of the challenges, first challenges, let's talk about, what are some of the challenges the U.S. will face with other countries should it not show that, you know, we, the biggest historical emitter in the world, are not doing our part yet? Mm-hmm. So around Earth Day, right around or right after, the UN Secretary General said that we have to have the biggest emitters cut their emissions by the end of this year. So by the end of 2022, there has to be a significant cut for the biggest emitters in the world in order for us to avoid climate catastrophe. And that's a pretty big statement when you think about it. Yeah. Um, Because that's only, we're measuring that in weeks and months now. Uh, It's no longer measuring in years for us to take significant action. And globally, there will be, if not more than it is already, a glance towards the United States to see how have we done in our efforts to be a significant part of that. And I think, Lisa, we we have some serious work to do in that space because when we look at other countries, take the the EU, for example, who has been able to reduce global emissions through legislation, Um, And that those reductions have been realized, uh, particularly over the last, I'd say, 10 to 15 years. They are at, since um, 2009, 2010, 
about a 10 to 12% reduction overall, whereas the United States during the same time period has had a 2% increase. So it puts us in a, in a pretty tough spot. I think the other consideration and challenge that we have is globally, people are also talking about justice and equity. Who is responsible and who the responsibility is to in terms of that reduction. Right. So the global South is certainly casting glances all over the westernized world. But taken into account with the International Panel on Climate Change's reports on adaptation, resiliency, and mitigation, there is a clear point towards uh, countries that have that have and are suffering the greatest harm, but also have a tremendous need to ensure that there is an equitable reduction and that they are receiving some benefit for that. And we think we'd be remiss not to put this in the context of Ukraine right now. Um, you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, in addition to being a humanitarian crisis, has driven up gas prices. Um, in the United States, uh, has created energy crises globally. We are seeing already an increase in coal use in in some parts of the the world as an effort to get away from Russian oil and gas. In the U.S., we have President Biden both saying, "Please, oil companies, we'd like you to drill more." <laughs> And also, we still care very much about climate change and intend to do everything we can. Um, first, let's talk about the U.S. How how worried are you that our policies to address gas prices will lock in, you know, new oil and gas? How much should we be worried about a, a, a lasting? Uh, increase in in infrastructure and in, in fossil fuel infrastructure. Right. I, I am concerned that we are being very responsive and falling back to our old ways of doing things, which is to say, okay, let's fall back on fossil fuels. That's our go-to. That's what we know, what people know. And the first time there's this agitation about um, the cost of, of gas, we turn the messaging from investing in renewable energy and really keeping to push people in in the vein of moving forward to say, okay, well, no, 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 we have to drive gas prices down. And got to understand, well, the people who are driving cars every day today, the majority of them are driving gas vehicles. And so it's certainly understandable that people are going to the pump. And on one hand, they're hearing that we're going to have a tremendous electrification and EV outlay such that their access to gas is going to be completely cut off. And on the other hand, they see the gas prices going up. So there's some conflicting messaging going on. And how does that result? It results in people going and getting a, you know, garbage bag and putting gas in it because they're afraid that they're going to run out of gas mm -hmm. and it's going to cost us too much. On the other side of that, though, this is a place where environmental justice groups and big green groups align because there has to be a stick to itness, a commitment to renewable energy such that we are not moved um, by the conflict that we know exists all over the world. So 
climate change as it's happening right now and the expansion of climate emission, global climate emissions, um, I'm sorry, global air pollution and um, carbon emissions exasperates climate change. We can see that in mapped out um, climate impact labs, wonderful yeah. maps that shows the relationship between the increase of heat related to global emissions and conflict around the world. So we know conflict will increase based upon how global warming is happening. If we know this information already, that tells us there's going to be more situations like Ukraine. Will our response always be the same? And if our response is always the same, then we're not being effective in moving people to renewable energy because, again, we're falling back onto the, the, the old reliable fossil fuels and natural gas. So it creates a problem for us where both, I think, environmental justice groups as well as big green groups are saying, we cannot afford to do this. This is not equitable. It is not feasible. It's not viable. And it's continuing to support the conflict. Ah, uh, well, to the extent that you follow, you know, the, the global climate negotiations, what impact do you think that the, that do you think, what impact do you think the uh, crisis in Ukraine and Russia's invasion will have on global climate discussions mm -hmm. right now and this year? I think it's definitely causing uh, everyone to look deeply at what the energy sources are who we're relying on for our energy uh, and how we can be um, better stewards of what can actually happen moving forward, you know, taking into account these conflicts and what's taking place. Um, it made me Im immediately think, going back to a conversation we had a little bit earlier about what can happen, what can be happening in the United States right now to help us to drive down emissions, a solution that came from folks in South Texas, which was enforce what we have. Mm. You know, if we in the United States will simply enforce the regulations that we currently have requiring a reduction in uh, emissions, that is a major opportunity for us to be a part of stabilizing what's happening. Uh, if we look to the obvious places where we can plug emissions. It's one of the key areas that you know, we're working on at EDF around methane, just identifying where the leaks are and immediately plugging those leaks helps us to reduce these emissions. So simply taking the small steps that we have access to now and doing it consistently and doing it well is a place where the United States can begin to show significant progress and awareness that while it does not directly address what may be happening in Ukraine and future conflicts, it does show us, and I think shows the world, that we are aware and taking the steps that we right now have the ability to take, and we're measuring how we're having an impact on those reductions. I think we have to be prepared to go to the table with something. Heather, I want to thank you so much for being in conversation with us and, and uh, I look forward to talking to you more the rest of this day. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure, Lisa. 
Thanks for listening. Make sure to subscribe to Off the Charts wherever you get your podcasts, including on Epic's website at epic.uchicago.edu. Until next time, I'm Sam Warren.